Hey everyone, Lainey here. So as you can probably hear, I'm a little under the weather, but I didn't want that to stop me from releasing this really important episode that means a lot to me. I was joined back in November by Verity Carter, who is a survivor of the Children of God cult, and Sarah Steele from the Let's Talk About Sex podcast. We dive into Verity's experience and being raised in this cult, and then kind of being pushed out into the world without anything to her name and no resources. It's really, really inspiring to see how far she's come and how brave she is in sharing her story. Now, Verity is very, very passionate about the Safe Passage Foundation, and I know that my listeners will show up in a big way, so we're asking for your donations in Verity's name to that nonprofit. Now, basic human rights for children around the world should just be a given. But there are communities and groups that choose to withdraw and work outside the structure established by society. Children raised in these communities or groups may sometimes be denied basic human rights that we take for granted. The Safe Passage Foundation provides resources, support, and advocacy for youth raised in restrictive, isolated, or high-demand communities, often referred to as cults by society at large. I've made the pledge to Verity that any revenue created during this episode, either through ads or anything like that, are going to be donated in her name to the Safe Passage Foundation. If you do make a donation in Verity's name, please tag me so that I can show her. She's not very active on social media, but she will likely comment on the Facebook page um, once I post the episode. And I'll also leave a link to the Safe Passage Foundation in the show notes so that you can make a donation directly in Verity's name if you wish. You can also simply share the link to your social media websites to help drum up support for them. And again, thank you Verity and Sarah for joining me on Spotify Greenroom. Don't forget you can join me every Tuesday at 6 p.m. 7 Eastern on True Crime Convos on Spotify Greenroom. Okay, on to the show. Hey everyone, Lainey here, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, the It's Haunted What Now podcast, and the Crimes of Passion podcast on Spotify. Okay, so thank you both for joining me. This is going to just be a really, you know, just open-ended discussion. I didn't really want to have a huge plan going into it because I just like the flow of a discussion to kind of be natural. Um, We will be having people join in kind of slowly as the notifications go out so that um, people know we've started the the show. But if you, Sarah, want to introduce yourself to Verity, I obviously know who you are. But if you'd like to introduce yourself um, so that we can understand kind of why I've asked you to be a part of this conversation. Of course, of course. Hi, Verity. Really nice Hi. to meet you. Um, I, I make a, a podcast as well called Let's Talk About Sects, which is um, I've spoken to a lot of survivors of various cults. So, um, you know, I just I have a lot of admiration for anyone like yourself who does uh, manage to speak out about their experiences because that is not an easy thing to do. And I think that it really helps people understand how other people end up in these situations that, and that more needs to be done to help those who've come out as well. Okay. So as Vinny told yes. us a little bit about there. It's nice to meet you. Yes. And then Verity, if you could, we have individuals who've already joined our room. So welcome everybody. I just want to say thank you so much for coming. We've been talking about this in True Crime Convos for a while because Verity, you know, I approached you and there were some discussions that needed to be had on the back end to make sure that you could even have this conversation with us in the first mm-hmm. place. So I'm very, very happy that it worked out. Um, our colleagues here um, do an episode where they review um, documentaries and they happen to be reviewing the Discovery Plus documentary that you were a part of. And I had so many questions <laughs> for them that they obviously couldn't answer because, you know, they just watched it. Um, and that's kind of how I approached Sarah and was like, I have to know, like, why this is happening, what entices people into this. Um, and I want to hear kind of from somebody who survived this whole ordeal. Um, so if you could give us a background into your <clears throat> your life, essentially, of of how you became known, you know, as a survivor. And sort of in a nutshell, the whole thing. <laughs> 
Okay, so I was born into the Children of God cult. Um, for anyone who's seen the docu series, obviously that's the whole the whole feature. It's a five part docu series featuring that cult. Um, I never knew any life outside of it as a child. I um, was raised in it until I escaped when I was fifteen years old. Um, during my time in the cult, it was a very coercive, controlled environment. It was very Everything was controlled. Um, you didn't have control of your own body or your own thoughts. You didn't have personal possessions. You weren't allowed to have their own opinions. Uh, you were being raised as an end-time soldier for Jesus, and you followed the dogma that the cult put out, and there was no other options. There was no life. You weren't prepared for life outside the cult. I didn't receive a proper education. I didn't have any opportunities to pursue any dreams of my own. In fact, in order, if I had any dreams of my own, that was brutally punished. When I left the cult at 15, it was like jumping into a whole different world. I had been completely secluded from outside society. So when I did leave home at 15, it was without a support network, without family to rely on. And it was extremely difficult adapting to the outside world. And obviously, when you're saying, how did I become known as a survivor? That's fast forwarding many years because it did take me decades to sort my head out after leaving that environment and to reach the point where I was able to go to the police, make statements and pursue justice of some form. And more recently, I've been actively involved in some court cases. My dad was convicted in 2018. That was the first conviction of an adult from the cult within the UK. And that's probably where I was labelled as a survivor. Um, but then again, as I said, there's been another court case since then by another person from the mm. cult. And we're hoping there may be more cases coming to court. And the idea of doing the docu series was to try to get more people to speak up and come forward and to realise that there is a point in telling their story and speaking their truth because as unlikely as it is to happen, justice can happen in some form. And outside of that, just being able to tell my own story in my own words, even without any anything that happened in court, did give me a certain level of closure. And I think it could give closure to others as well if they were able to do that. Yeah, I, I thought that that was so interesting that there weren't more people who wanted to come forward because they didn't feel like it would come come of anything like anything would come of it um and with your father being the first one to be charged has that mindset changed at all for anybody that you've been in contact with i've had a lot of people come to me not just survivors from my cult but survivors from other high demand environments coercive environments that have said mm -hmm. that after watching the docu series they're going to go and make statements and say their piece and honestly I've been quite overwhelmed by the amount of people that have said they're going to do that so yes I do think it's had an impact I think it's important to note though it's not just the whole feeling that there's not a point which is the reason people don't speak it's it's very difficult when you come out of an environment like that for the years I stayed silent because I felt I needed to protect other people I felt that if I spoke it would mm. affect other people that I cared for or who weren't that bad really or maybe other victims like myself. And I stayed silent for the sake of everyone else. It was only so many years later that I realized the only person, only people that I was protecting by staying silent was the actual abusers. But it is it is a big, big thing in a lot of survivors' heads. They don't want to speak because of the impact it could have on friends and relatives that they don't feel deserve to be punished. Yeah. Interesting. Sarah, have you, with the, the ability that you have to talk with other survivors, have you also seen that? Yeah, there are so many reasons why people don't speak out and it's completely understandable that they don't because they, uh, you know, they might have families still involved and that can make it really tough for them. Um, they do often mm -hmm. see justice doesn't happen. I mean, particularly with Children of God, it's actually quite in incredible that, that Verity's managed to see some justice there because there are so many instances where you know, there were there were raids of, of um, like, children taken out of homes and then returned to their parents and, you know, like, they had been highly trained in what they were s supposed to say to people in the outside world to, um, 
police or anyone else about what was going on. And it, it was just very hard for anyone to get any justice in, in many circumstances. So it's wonderful that that's starting to happen now, that that's continuing to happen. But the, the face that the groups kind of give to the outside world can be seen as, you know, they're often framed as harmless new religious movements. So it, it takes a lot to kind of take them on and, and take on that whole narrative and, and talk about what really happened. And particularly this was happening with children who are, you know, they have a lot of trauma to deal with and then to come to terms with it later. A lot of people who come out, they have a lot of shame as well about um, many aspects of their involvement, maybe things they were done that they did when they were involved and that can make it really, really tough to speak out. And I think a lot of, a lot of the problem is, I mean, children of God, there were lots of really terrible crimes that happened, but a lot of people who come out of other cults, it, it wasn't even necessarily that, that crimes happened. A lot of this coercive control stuff isn't recognised as a crime. So they've been through so many limiting things and all of the things that mm. Verity just spoke about. It, it seems pretty wild to me that you can come out and have your life so impacted and have this level of trauma, yet no crime has been committed in the eyes of the law. Oh, wow. So Verity, you have mentioned in several different articles kind of that your mother was the one who initiated joining children of God. Um, what it's known as at the, or what it was known as at the time. Now it's known as the family or the family international. Um, how, I, I, I don't know the status of your mother and I don't know your relationship. So it's obviously whatever you're comfortable um, discussing, but I'm curious as to how this it, how this whole thing with David Berg starting it, how this enticed her? My mother was a vulnerable person. There's no denying that. My mother came from a broken home. She'd had mental health problems. And the family mm. had this practice at the time that she joined. I think the term is love bombing, where they would just go up to her as, oh, we love you, we love you, man. Big hugs, big cuddles. Be part of her family. They gave her a sense of belonging and they gave her a family that needed her and that was addictive to my mother in the place that she was at. I obviously can only go on what I've been told. I wasn't there but that's definitely from what I have gathered from relatives and other people and my parents themselves the way that my mother was converted. I know personally speaking when I was younger we were trained to convert people and convince people and to get what we needed from systemites which was our word for everyone in the outside world and we were trained to spot a vulnerable person I some children went to school and did reading writing maths I was considered too stupid to educate but what I did get was classes on body language and identifying looks and expressions and something in the eyes and wording and basically finding out what somebody was missing in their life so they could say that they were going to fit it in order to get what they required from them, whether that was to get them to say a prayer with you, to give you money, to buy a pamphlet or to come to a meeting, fill in the gap. The important thing was spotting the vulnerability and filling that need. And that's basically what happened to my mother. I was getting classes of that from... As a child, you were talking I think about. I was first class I remember getting or something like that was I was about eight years old oh my gosh that's I can't believe that that's the level of manipulation I think to be able to use a child like that it was explained is, to us that it was a way of showing them God's love but looking back it was totally being taught how to manipulate them and it's just very different looking back on those educational classes as to what it felt like when I was in them yeah that's I have I didn't even realize that they, I, I was always wondering like how um, children and cults would be indoctrinated that way I typically thought that this was happening as a look and see learn and see type of situation like oh this is just what we do um, as opposed to like actual classes of to, like truly what it is is manipulation you're being manipulated to manipulate um, I wasn't taught the basic educational skills my academic side was completely backed it wasn't felt necessary for being an end of this world warrior end of times warrior however being taught how to get what we needed from the system in order to achieve god's work mm -hmm. that was our primary focus and we got taught all the skills to do that 
Yeah. So circling back to what Sarah said about how they teach children how to speak to uh, people within the system. So for here, we have Child Protective Services over there. I'm sure um, it's labeled something different, but essentially the same. Mm -hmm. Um, When did that type of training start to where it became an issue? Again, that was indoctrinated from a very age. Uh, I remember getting classes on it at eight and nine years old, and they got more intense as I got older. And uh, we'd even do like, skits and role plays, and it was very much ingrained. To There was this massive feeling of fear and paranoia constantly when growing up in the cult because everyone in the system and the outside world was out to get you and out to stop you doing God's will. That included authorities, that included social workers, it included teachers, it included any person you met on the street. And there was this massive thing of fear that you could not you know like expose yourself to them and let them know the real truth because they wouldn't handle it and they'd use it against them so you had lines to say and if you were and you used to practice if they were ever taken in a raid or if their social services ever came how they'd talk to them how they'd smile how they'd answer questions what number they'd give them what they'd demand i.e being reunited with the parents and here's the thing as i got older to teenage years if I wanted to be taken away, I was desperately unhappy in the cult, but I was so scared that if I said the wrong thing, my siblings and friends in the cult would suffer because of what I said. They'd be separated. Horrible things would happen to them. My parents would be taken away. I'd never see them again, and it would all be my fault. And because of that, even if I had been in a raid, I would have followed the line and said what they taught me to say because it wasn't about me it was about all the suffering I'd be responsible for happening to anyone left behind if I exposed the grip or said what I wanted to say and escaped right so the self right so the self perseverance or whatever was superseded by the need to protect everybody else around you um we had a question in the chat from Lauren who said when you left what was the hardest thing to adjust to in the outside world they know they're going to think this is really weird and it's such a silly thing. But when I say it was an entirely different world, it was an entirely different world. And the weirdest thing for me to get used to in the outside world is how immature anyone my age was. I was 15 years old and people around me didn't know how to boil an egg or make a bed. And at 15 years old, I was holding down three jobs and paying rent in my old bed set. <laughs> I could not, I could not oh believe how how little people my age knew, how little they'd lived and how little they'd experienced. It was so weird to me. I couldn't have a conversation with them. I mean, it was difficult enough to have a conversation anyway. I had no pop culture. I was pretty sure a soap opera was a toiletry. I was loose to some conversations. But, but outside of that, just basically, even being able to like, you know, talk about anything basic, we were on such different levels. It was... it absolutely baffled me the thing I found hardest in the outside world was making my first friend I found it really difficult to develop any sort of social skills um that's I yeah I can't even think so when you first left um what where did you go like how did you just decide I'm done I'm leaving I reached a point in the cult. Um, at the point I left, I'd already tried to commit suicide a few times. I'd already tried to run away a few times. And I'd been told my whole life that the outside world was full of these horrible people. And as soon as I left, there was cautionary tales told of people like River Phoenix, where they would just get pumped through the drugs and die and just because they left the cult. And I think at the point when I left the cult... It didn't matter anymore because it couldn't be worse. I wasn't going to survive the year inside it. So if I died in the outside world, what difference did that really make? So I burnt my bridges. I got Mm. myself kicked out. Um, I wasn't brave enough to go through the retraining program. So I basically made myself unwanted in a very big way. (laughs) I ended up in a fight. I was out the next day. I was sent to live with my dad, who'd been excommunicated when I was 10 years old. I was sent to live with him because none of my other relatives knew me. None of my other relatives had been allowed any significant contact with me growing up because they were systemites. So even though my dad was one of my abusers, he was the only person I could be sent to live with. Mm -hmm. 
I lived with him for a matter of months and we had a falling out. I wasn't truly comfortable being in his presence. I hadn't forgiven or forgotten the past. And so I ended up in a fight with him as well and moved out and got a cash in hand bed set in an area that didn't ask questions. I was living on my own and holding down three jobs before I turned 16. Wow. And Sarah, for your experience with the survivors as well, how have you seen their experience in the outside world? I say outside world because obviously when you're in a system like this, it's very insulated to, um, that's their whole point, right? Is to sever your ties from everybody and everything that you know. So like, what are, are you seeing similar patterns here? Yeah, I mean, it it depends on the setup of the cult because uh, some are much more kind of physically insulated, but all are very emotionally insulated. So they'll have um, given most members the impression that anyone on the outside world, whether it's the system or they might call it, there's a Zendik farm called it the death culture or whatever it is, are not to be fully trusted. So you can't Mm -hmm. um, have ongoing relationships with them or meaningful relationships with them. So that social aspect is really difficult coming out. But I think, you know, listening to what Verity is saying, it's so many people, they they look at cult members and they think, oh, why don't they just leave? And that tells you why they don't leave. I mean, you have to rebuild your entire life in the outside world. It's It's such a huge undertaking. And it's a really common story that I hear that particularly if you've grown up in this in this scenario, you didn't choose to join in the first place. It's all you've ever known. You, you think that on the outside world, you're likely to die, whether it's yeah. a religious cult or not. There's, there's The teaching is that, you know, you're in great danger if you leave or your family is or whatever else. And so you have to reach a point of everything getting so terrible that that doesn't mm-hmm. matter anymore. And that just, I mean, I just have such huge admiration for anyone who managed to leave a situation like that because it takes so much to do. Yeah, Verity, we have a um, audience member that'd like to join um, up. So I'm going to go and add William. So William, you're likely muted. So just unmute yourself. If you don't see a way to do that, just pull down. I got it. Okay, awesome. You have a question? I really don't have a question. I just want to speak out on saying that, you know, whatever you guys went through with all of that, it's extremely disturbing. It's 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 horrible to for anybody to be manipulated in that kind of way and put into that kind of position to where you feel like you're too scared to get away from it. Like that's not fair. It's not a sorry. There's a TV in the background, but um, yeah, I just wanted to speak out a little bit on it because even to me myself. I've had people try and put me in that position before and I was fortunate enough to be able to see the signs and get away from it. And I really feel for you you guys' pain and and struggle that you had to go through. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. Thank you for sharing. You know. Well, thank you for um, sharing that. Thank you guys for inviting me to the room. Sure. I'll tune in again sometime when I actually have the time, but I'm, I'm not the type of person that has a lot of time for the phone and the internet. So anyways, thank you. It was. Thanks. Thanks. All right. So Verity, how do you feel when people approach you or say things like that to you? Because I know for some people, um, I don't ever like to victimize anybody by saying they were victims of. I always like to kind of lean more towards the more powerful statement of being a survivor of certain things. But I know for some people who have survived um, ordeals like yours, especially growing up, you know, and this is all you've ever known, um, when they when they offer their sympathies like that, how does that kind of relate to you in terms of like, is that... I know some people see it as pity or anything like that. So I'm just curious, like, how you accept that type of feedback. I take it in the way it's meant. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming that they actually care. You have to understand that mm-hmm. for the majority of my life, I was pretty convinced that nobody would ever care. My parents never cared. My siblings, nobody that was in my circle had ever cared about me or any aspect of me and I was always told that no one would believe me and no one would care so when people reach out and say those things I find it really emotional it's it's a really lovely thing for them to say 
I also, I guess, um, I guess I don't, I'm not very good at taking compliments for lack of a better description. And so when they see, when they see like they're expressing their empathy or sympathy for it, I totally like feel it's so overwhelming that that has actually got through to them and meant something to them. By the same token, when people say, oh, they're so strong, they're a survivor, I think, well, they don't actually know because you see, I wasn't, when I left, I was broken and there's still parts of me that are and will always be. I've got various things that I have to work through on a regular basis. And honestly, yes, I am a survivor, but in some ways it's pure chance that I survived where some others didn't because I did do that thing that many escapees of these environments do. I did go off the rails. I did self-medicate to quite a considerable degree. I put myself in a lot of very dangerous situations. And honestly, there's people that have done less than me that haven't survived this far. And I think I just... I was lucky enough to make it out the other end and actually start building a life for myself. So I, I find that part so interesting too, that a lot of the things that you were afraid of would happen kind of did happen, right? Like you went into um, your substance abuse and everything like that. So can you talk about how that kind of started for you? Because I think everybody's introduced at some point to um, substances. So I, I'm curious as to when that started for you, when you left, um, when and I, we're on your own. When I left, I was 15. I had the full-on teenage rebellion hormones that you'd get anyway outside of having a background like mine. But I had a lot of... Mm-hmm. I, had, I was really messed up. I'd been a victim of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse since as far back as I could remember. Since like three, four years old, this stuff had been happening. I wanted to destroy my memories. I didn't want to remember anything I'd been raised with. And if there was anything on offer that can make that happen for me, I took it. It was as simple as that. It wasn't that I wanted to die. I just didn't care if I lived. Nothing was more important than just, you know, destroying that part of my life because I couldn't get past it. Thank you for sharing that. So we also had another question from Lauren. She asked, how did you learn how to do things like adult things at such a young age when you left? Did you have to learn on your own or did anyone help you? I was very, very methodical. I had some skills which are transferable. For example, the skills for um, fundraising and talking to system people to get them to do what we wanted them to do. They were very useful for job hunting. I had been catering for 50 people since I was 10 years old I had catering experience it was very easy for me to get cash and hand catering work it was very easy for me to let employers assume what they needed to assume to give me the job and no one asked my age I didn't tell them I talked and acted and looked older than I was because I'd been an adult for five years so the actual basics of survival, the catering, the looking after yourself. I mean, I could do plumbing, basic DIY for a house. I hadn't had an education, but I could do all of that. So that part was easy enough. And the rest of it, I was extremely methodical. I went into charity shops and bought every album under a pound to find out what sort of music I liked because I never listened to music. I had no idea what the difference is between rock, pop, rap. I would go into pubs when I wasn't working. And I got away with that because of how I looked and acted. And I would eavesdrop on people's conversations and I'd go home and do research. And God, what I would have given for YouTube when I first left. But that wasn't around in 95. So when I say I'd do my research, I would go to libraries. I would read magazines. I would watch TV, all four channels of it. I would um, figure out what people were talking about because conversation meant nothing. Dole, holidays, work. It was like an alien language. I didn't understand the context of anything. And then I'd go into other pubs and I'd try out the bits of conversation I'd heard other people use as openers and see how far I got until I messed it up. And then I'd go into a different pub where they didn't know I was a weirdo there. <laughs> and it was a very, very methodical process figuring out all the bits and filling in the gaps and it was probably a good couple of years before I actually was able to hold down a proper conversation in my own right and understand what I was talking about. But I got there. I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you, and I call those the fun expected moments. And I get those from Fun Jet Vacations. FunJet Vacations offers vacation packages to your favorite destinations such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. 
For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. Right now, you can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 on your next FunJet vacation. That's FJ50 to save $50 on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself where you could go at funjet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply. There's honestly nothing more important than taking care of yourself. Because if you're not feeling your best, you can't be your best. Sambucol helps you feel your best with powerful immune support powered by nature's superfruit, black elderberry. Now listen, I'm a new mom, so I don't have time to feel down and out, so I make sure to incorporate my Sambucol in my everyday life. It has been something really, really important to start off my day. I feel like I'm taking control with Sambucol because it helps support my immune system, and I feel like I'm doing my body good by taking Sambucol every day. It has a great taste. I honestly love the gummies the best, so sometimes I feel like starting off my day with a nice warm cup of water, and I'll actually use the Sambucol drink powder in there, and it tastes so good. It's really, really refreshing and makes me feel like it's an easy thing to incorporate into my wellness routine. Best of all, Sambucol is a trusted brand. It's the original black elderberry and was developed by a virologist, so I know I'm getting a great quality product, and you can too. Get 15% off your next order of $9.99 or more at sambucolusa.com. Use TCFC for 15% off. That's sambucolusa.com. Use TCFC for 15% off. S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L-U-S-A dot com. Use code TCFC for 15% off. Good. I mean, that's fascinating in and of itself. Sarah, do you have any um, any questions you want to swing out? Yeah, um, something I'm really interested in is how we could build some better systems uh, in society to to support those who come out of cults because, you know, the the level of um, adjustment that you have to make when you've come out of a group like that is so, so full on. And I think I've only seen one model that seems to encompass all of the things that are required, which is in New Zealand. I don't know if you've heard of it, Verity. It's a, a group called Gloria Vale and there's the Gloria Vale Leavers Support Trust where they kind of almost treat those who've come out as if they're refugees in a sense. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on what better systems could be in place that would have really helped you when you when you exited. I think general awareness amongst the professionals um, of people like me and like others that have come from high demand coercive environments. I know there is more awareness now than there was then, but I did try to see some professionals right back in the day and it was handled really badly and it put me off seeking professional help for well over a decade. Mm. The first counsellor I went to see, I was 15 years old and I spilled out my story to her and she's got really aggressively on the phone. She was going to contact the police. She was going to get courts involved. And I, I panicked. I had been told that my little sisters would be sent to live with my rapist mm. if I said anything against the court and I didn't want that to happen to them. And I tried to tell this um, counsellor that if if she did this, she'd be putting my sisters at risk and I couldn't go through with this. And she just steamrolled me. She wouldn't listen to me. She didn't stop and say, okay, calm down. We'll do this at lower pace. She didn't, you know, like say, okay, well, like, let's just talk about this. She didn't listen to a word I was saying. She was just like, oh, hipped up, ready to go. And I got so scared and she wasn't listening to a word I said. So I just turned around and said that if she did, take this to court, I turned around and said I made the whole thing up, left her office and didn't seek professional help for another 15 years. It could have been handled a lot better. But she isn't the only one that didn't handle it right. There were police officers that arrested me when I was completely like at the tail end of the two-week benders. There was hospital staff when I overdosed. These are people that never asked the follow-up questions that really could have and should have been asked at one point I split my head open on a loose walk when I was um, 17 years old and apparently I regressed and started shouting out about all the abuse I'd suffered and naming my dad amongst others and 
my dad was actually a youth leader connected to this group and the group leader's way of dealing with this was to tell the kids if anyone asked any questions just to say that I was wasted and not to be listened to and no one ever asked me anything I think it's and when I did see counsellors even later on in life, they were very enthusiastically trying to treat my case like it came out of a textbook. And when you come from an environment like that, it's not the same as what's in the average textbook. It isn't something that just has black and white answers. It's so important to actually listen to the person talking, like listen properly and not just speak over them and assume they know the answer before they finish telling their story. And I don't think there was enough professionals that did that in my case. And I wish I wish there was more. Mm, it's, it's so common. I've heard from so many people that even if they've tried to seek uh, counselling or a psychologist to speak to that they just don't have that knowledge to be able to deal with it effectively and it's I think it's a huge problem um, and then on top of that there are so many cults that teach the members that psychologists are evil and you know can't be trusted anyway so yeah I think the problem. biggest problem with the professionals is the ones at least I encountered had this massive habit of feeling like they had to be able to give a fix or give an answer instead of if they came across something completely alien and different, just, just asking the questions. I would have been fine if they said they didn't know what they were talking about or if they said they wanted to do more research. I didn't like being steamrolled over and talked over and then coming up with solutions that didn't fit my problem without actually listening to what I was saying. That makes so much sense too because that's what you dealt with the majority of your life was being told what would work for you and what to do. So having a therapist approach you in that manner and saying, no, 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 I know what's best. I mean, to me, that would create a visceral reaction to say, this is exactly what I left. And now I'm just giving it, you know, giving free reign over myself again to somebody else. Yeah, I think it's for somebody coming from an environment where everything is controlled, they want to be heard. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing any professional can do is actually listen to them and not enough of them do it. That's insane. I was also wondering about your, your path, Verity, to um, reaching the point where you did feel able to pursue it um, in a legal sense. Um, you know, what it took for you to get there. You said uh, that it was realising that staying silent was only protecting the abusers. Do you think that there was anything in particular that brought you to that realisation to be able to pursue it now? I don't think it was quite as simple as that. That realisation that staying silent had only protected the abusers actually probably came after I started making my initial statements. For me, the trigger for making my initial statements was when I had my first child. And up until then... Um, I had very much been thinking, oh, well, it's not worth it because the only person that would be helping is me. I'd be punishing all these people who are good people now for somebody who they were then. They don't deserve that. I'd be hurting all these other people. My gran would die of shame. My siblings, it would cause them so much issues. Blah, blah, blah. All these different things that it would impact. And essentially, it all came down to the fact that I didn't matter enough for the fact that it was important to me to be a reason to talk but when I had a child my perspective changed and I imagined any of the things that I'd been through happening to my child and I realized I couldn't I couldn't not do something at that point because it made it more real it was worse thinking about that happening to somebody else than remembering it happening to me if that makes any sense I've heard that similar story so many times as well. It's it's so much um, mm -hmm. it's so much easier to see that it's unacceptable if you think of it in the context of your own child than what you were able to put up with for yourself. Because it just doesn't feel like it matters as much for yourself, which is a really toxic idea, but it's one that has been ingrained into me since birth and one that I still struggle to get over. It was very much to think of, Jesus first, the cult second, others third, and yourself at the very bottom of the list. And it's it's a very difficult mindset to overcome. Even when you know it's a wrong one, it's still difficult to move past on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Um, I was also abused 
um, when I was younger through, I, I kind of blocked most of it out. Um, but I would say probably around the time I was starting middle school through high school and I kept silent to protect my, my mom, essentially it was, um, her, her husband at the time. Um, so I, I can relate to that and, and that feeling of forget about me. I can deal with it. Um, but I don't want my mom to suffer through anything because she's tried, um, you know, so hard to find love and same thing with my, your grandma. Um, I thought the same thing. I was like, my grandma would be, you know, so ashamed of this whole thing. I would be ashamed if she knew. And so it was a mixture of shame and also trying to just keep everything together, not for me, but for her, because I always thought like, oh, once I turn 18, I'm done. I can do whatever I need to do and live my life freely. But until then, I have to kind of just suck it up. And one day I just decided that that's not going to be me anymore. I'm just going to, you know, be honest and forthcoming about what's going on. And I was finally able to kind of get out of that cycle for myself. And it, it, it's, it was a really hard, you know, decision to make because ultimately it was going to impact the happiness of my mother, which I grew up in a household with a bunch of domestic violence and alcohol abuse. So I was already kind of used to taking care of my mom in that sense. Um, so it, it was, it was difficult to kind of, to make that change. So I definitely, you know, get that feeling and I know what it means and for people who haven't been through that, it's hard to kind of understand. It is one of those things. There's this massive sense of responsibility for everyone around you. Mm -hmm. I was the oldest girl in my family, which meant I was basically mother to a lot of my younger siblings for a large part of my childhood. And mm -hmm. an impact on them was something I felt responsible for outside of anything else. And like you said, you just sort of feel, well, I can take it. So it's sort of my job mm -hmm. to take it to protect them from mm -hmm. having to go through any more, any more than they already do. Right. So you actually had a brother, he left before you did. Mm -hmm. So how is your relationship with him now? And are your other siblings also out or they still like, what's the status of your siblings? If you're comfortable answering that. Okay. I thought they won't go too much into my siblings because I know they've all, some of them have chosen different journeys and I don't want to, you know, bring them up. Mm -hmm. Really, I don't feel it's my place to tell their stories. Yeah. Um, I have a good relationship with most of my siblings. Um, my brother that left before I did, um, who is also in the Doctor series, um, I have a really strong relationship with him now. Um, and um, as I said, with most of my siblings, it wasn't always the case. When we first left, we were all a bit messed up. We crossed paths several times, but we were all damaged quite badly and had our own journeys to make. It was probably a good bit later on that we actually started bonding properly. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if that's for when you were in the cult, um, because I, for instance, for myself, I'm very, very close to my sibling. Um and so I'm, I'm curious, in the cult, were you allowed to be close to your siblings? For my youngest... In, in the sense of like having an actual sibling bond? Um, generally speaking, family relations were not encouraged. In fact, they were actively discouraged in the cult. It was meant to be one family under Jesus. And so families were separated. It was fairly common for children at the age of 12 to be shipped off away from their parents separately. And you weren't, you didn't really get to spend a massive amount of family time together. I know some families were close in the cult, but ours was not one of them. I didn't have a close relationship with my siblings when I was growing up. I was responsible for a large part for my youngest siblings, teaching them. And I've ended up with a very close relationship with some of my youngest siblings because of mm -hmm. that. But I was, wasn't so much closeness as I felt mm -hmm. I was responsible for protecting them if that makes sense. It wasn't It wasn't like it was a mutual support network. And yeah. um, as for the ones which were close in age to me, we, we didn't have any significant relationship inside the cult. That is something that we built outside. It's really, it's a really common thing in cults I, 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 to try and kind of mm -hmm. break down that family bond because the leadership wants the, uh, wants the members to be, yeah, have their loyalty first to the cult and the leadership and then, you know, the family bonds come after that. So that's hugely common. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was at least thinking like maybe you could lean on each other, but it makes more sense that even the family unit you would break down so that there's maybe this distrust, you know, or, you know, you're just you're focused on one goal and that's just to serve the Lord in quotation marks, <laughs> if you will. Um, Verity, how old were you when you kind of realized that you the way that your life was going and the life that you were living was wrong? Um, that's a bit of a difficult question because I think I didn't really realize it was Vaughn. And to be honest, I wasn't even entirely sure it was Vaughn right up until the point I left. I just thought that Ooh. I was Vaughn because I wasn't able to live it. Um, here's the truth of the matter. For, the, for most of my childhood, I was actually trying to be a good Christian end time soldier for Jesus. I was just really bad at it. <laughs> I was always in trouble. I was always being punished. I mean, constantly. I can't remember a time when I wasn't. I had a vivid imagination that was something that was outlawed in the cult. And every time they showed signs of imagination, they'd be put in science restriction, they'd be punished. I didn't understand things people were saying all the time. I actually think I might be on the spectrum, but that's something that's being, um, I'm, diagnosed at the time I've got kids that show on the spectrum um but I didn't understand what people were asking so I'd Ooh. ask for clarification that was answering back more punishments my direction it didn't matter what I did I was always in trouble and the things that were happening to me upset me they made me cry. They made me really, really upset. And I would tell people and I would be told, oh, well, they're so lucky they're paying attention. It's like, honestly, they're not even worth paying attention to. You should be grateful or you should give it to God. You should do what, give them what they need. You should be a better Christian. Why can't they be more like such and such? And everyone else seemed to manage to be happy with what was happening. And I actually thought there was something wrong with me that I was so upset about all these things that everyone else clearly thought were normal. As I said, at the point when I broke down to the point where it didn't matter anymore, I just needed to get away from where I was. It wasn't even so much that I thought the cult was evil. I just, I just knew I couldn't survive anymore, but I thought that was something wrong with me. So many people who come out of these uh, these mm. groups, they often end up saying that I always had it in my head that something was wrong, but everyone around me was acting in a way that supported what was going on in, in the group. So I thought I was the only one. And oftentimes they're not the only one at all. But if you're surrounded by all of these people who are acting in these ways, of course you think that that, that you're the one who's the aberration. Having spoken to many others that have survived since, like in more recent years, it has occurred to me that they were probably just much better actors than me. <laughs> I just wasn't that good exactly. at faking it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the story. I know that it was a tense uh, situation where you basically fought back. Um, and I was like, I silently whispered, I was like, yeah, Verity. Like, it's <laughs> like I could t I could totally see it and imagine it in my head of you know how that transpired. And I was like, so even though it happened so long ago, from my perspective, you know, I I think that that's a great point to your to your bravery, honestly, and to your tenacity to kind of just live on your terms, even though it took you some time to get there. To me, that felt kind of like the beginning of it, of like, this is what I'm going to do to to fight back. And it was really small way, when you think about it, and it was a really small way to do that, but it was such a huge message of, you can't mess with me. Honestly, um, it, was a, it was a turning point for me that day that I got out of the cult. And my plan for getting out was basically just to do the opposite of what they wanted. And so uh, I pissed them off enough for them to kick me out, basically, for no <laughs> lack of a better description. That was my grand plan. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily the most intelligent plan in the world, but it was the one I got. And so I carried on doing the opposite. Yeah. I had this stash. I told one, one of the home grassies, she told on me, shocking enough. And then I was expected to confess. I didn't confess. And so then they tried to, you know, like guilt me into it. Didn't work. Then they tried to exercise me in a desperate prayer and I started laughing at them, which did not help. And so I was set up and they went to hit me and I hit back. And honestly, um, there was this point and I felt so powerful. 
I was doing it. It was like everything was in slow motion. I was never felt powerful in my entire life. And I think it was the first time in my life I ever felt that I had any control over anything. And then when my mom came up and um, she went to hit me and I hit her back, honestly, um, I went red. I saw red for lack of a better description. To this day, I have no memory of how I got from there to when I was on the actual fight in the floor with her, just screaming hysterically. And I think I probably had a bit of a mental snap at that point. I think it might have been a bit of a breakdown. But it, when I came to, I felt so, I felt so powerful. I felt so good. I felt so strong. And I felt for the first time in my life, I had control of something. And it felt real good. Um, probably a bit too good. Um, I had some, let's say, anger management issues for the first few years out of the cold. <laughs> that yes. may be responsible for some of the said hmm, dangerous situations I may have ended up in. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. But we got past that, and I learned to manage that yeah. eventually. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I thought, yeah. That's, that's great. amazing. Yeah. I, I thought great. that story was pretty great so in when, terms of, again, your tenacity. How, so when, how did you feel when your dad how, left? what was that how did you feel when how did you feel when your dad my felt guilty when my dad left the cult I felt like it was all my fault my dad left the cult not long after my baby sister had died and um she had passed away and he apparently felt guilty and wrote a full confession and my mom constantly told me that it was all my fault that he'd had to leave the cult because I made too much fuss and it upset me too much. It was only later I found out that I wasn't the only person he confessed to and actually his reasons for excommunication were very limited amount to do with what he did to me. However, at the time, I felt it was all my fault. And what you have to understand is that even though he had abused me, he was also the only person in my entire childhood who had ever shown me any affection my mom had never really shown me any affection and um, she never bonded with me apparently happens with some children I was that lucky child um, my siblings other adults no one had ever been kind to me or said they cared my dad was the only one who'd ever said he loved me so yeah, he abused me, but so did dozens of other people, and they weren't nice to me at other times, and I felt guilty for punishing the only person who'd ever been nice to me, and that's how I felt when he left, and that's the honest truth. Pretty so, sad, but I was 10 years old, to be fair. <laughs> yes, sorry, yeah, sorry if I have a bit of a uh, If you could try uh, me, that there you go. That may be it. No, it's just me. <laughs> so sorry, friends, if I have the echo. Um, so Shannon asked in the chat, and we kind of did talk about this a little bit, but um, she, Shannon, Verity talked about how the most difficult thing she had um, trouble adjusting to on the outside world was the maturity of people her age. <laughs> uh, she was probably the most mature 15-year-old you could have met at that point. Um, but when it came to prosecuting or trying to seek legal uh, ramifications for your father, were you in contact with him at all prior to that? Or did this just kind of, you decided like, yes, I need to get justice, uh, maybe for yourself or anything. To me, I, I, with the, um, with the time, if you will, that he got, I, to me, that wasn't a proper um, justice or sentence, but I'm curious to see how you feel about that. Um, and if you could kind of go into um, the sentencing and things like that, that he. Absolutely. And my dad is a complicated one. As I was trying to explain when you asked about how I felt when he left, I was 10 years old and I felt guilty because I was punishing the only man who'd ever said he cared. And when I left home at 15, of course, I was sent to live with him. And that was the first time I'd seen him since he walked out the door when I was 10 years old. And my thinking was it was easier to get away from one than from the hundreds. And he owed me and all these other things. But honestly, there was a large part of me that just wanted to have a dad. There was a large part of me that wanted to have a parent that cared. It's not something I'd ever really experienced outside of the few times he had, in fact, himself shown me affection when I was younger. 
And so it was very tumultuous when I first left. I confronted him about everything. I didn't want to go take legal action because I didn't want to hurt my grandmother or my siblings or other people. But I confronted him about it and he broke down. He apologized. He said how sorry he was and how he was this really good person now, helping so many people. And if I was to do anything now, I'd be punishing all these people by removing him from their lives and making them suffer um, for something that he was no longer doing. And he only ever did it in the first place because the cult made him do it. And it was all, all because they forced him into it. And I wanted to believe him so badly. I wanted to believe him because I wanted to think that well okay so it was all the cults fault and that means I, I, I can still I still get to have a parent I get to have one thing the same as everyone else it would have been so nice but I still had my anger management issues at that point and well a definite attitude problem and he ended up crossing a personal line with me in that first few months I was living with him so I ended up in an actual fight with him and moved out and I didn't have anything to do with him for a good few years. But in that few years, I was still in the same sort of local area to him. And um, I was getting this barrage of dumb people and dumb adults coming and telling me what a wonderful, amazing human being he was and how much he wanted to have a relationship with me and what an asset he had been to their lives or their children's lives or their friends' lives. And over time, I sort of thought, well, you know what, what's what's so bad about this? Obviously, he's not the same person he was. Obviously, he is a changed man and he is trying to make up for all the harm he did by doing this good. So I'll, I'll forgive him. We can have a relationship. And I actually did have a relationship with him as close to a dad and daughter relationship as I suppose he could have under the circumstances. I never really called him dad. I usually called him Alec. But we had a sort of mutual respect where we knew which boundaries we would cross. And I believed he wasn't that person anymore. And it was it was nice to think that I had a parent. It was something I desperately wanted my entire life. But as time went on, and when I did first start making the statements, I didn't include what my dad had done in my initial statements because I still felt like I needed to protect him but I realized that I couldn't I couldn't do that because it wasn't just me he'd hurt and I couldn't tell half a story I had to tell the whole story so actually at the point that I did that as I actually confronted my dad again and I said look I can't hold back anymore I've started this bubble and I need to tell everything I can't just like skip and miss the bits I need to tell absolutely everything there is to tell and that includes you and they're going to have to face up for it and at that point he broke down in tears and he said he said he told his hands up and he said he'd confessed everything and he felt so sorry and he said all the right things but then when I did and the police arrested him at first he pled not guilty and that just shocked me because that's something he promised he wouldn't do and then a bit later, he decided he'd plead guilty, but he pled guilty to, as part of a plea deal, to reduce charges. He confessed to a tiny fraction of what he'd actually done, and only to some of the people he'd done it to. And that isn't what he said he'd do. On top of that, um, a certain individual um, I knew confronted him um, on a sort of friendly level, and recorded their conversation with him just to show me and he was laughing about what he had done to us as not being that significant and not being a big deal and how he was only holding his hands up so you know like make us feel better but he was only holding his hands up to a few things so it wouldn't be like too severe punishment and honestly it I felt betrayed all over again I felt horribly betrayed I thought he was going to do the right thing. I really did. And yes, he confessed, but not the way he said he would. And saying sorry is no good if they don't know what they're saying sorry for. And it doesn't feel like from that conversation I heard that was recorded, he knows what he was saying sorry for. So I've had no contact with him since then. It was like losing him another time. It's also like saying that you've changed is all very well if you haven't done the work of atoning for the damage that you caused in the first place. Right. I think that's really, that's really, I let him off easy. Sorry. I was just going to say, I let him off easy with his initial apology because I wanted a parent. You have to understand the sheer, 
sheer power behind that for somebody that had always been told they were ugly, shit, worthless and unlovable by everyone, including their own mother. I just wanted a parent. That's heartbreaking. As a, a, I'm a new parent myself, and I, I got what you said whenever you mentioned changing because of your child, right? Or, or realizing um, that you wouldn't want anything what ha- like what happened to you to happen to them, that you would do anything to protect them. And I, I feel the same way. I, I, I tell my husband, I was like, I'm going to love my child like I wish somebody would have loved and protected me at that time. Um, so I, I definitely get that. Oscar in the chat has a question. He says, I'm curious about how your spirituality was affected after the way the religion was weaponized against you or um, were you able to find a way to connect or have faith in said religion or was it ruined for you? And if so, what helped fill the void for lack of a better word? It's a good question. And I think um, religion started to be ruined for me, not just religion, but faith. Faith is the issue I have. You have to understand that I was taught to basically open the Bible, pretty much point bind the verse and interpret it one bullshit way or another to make it mean whatever I needed it to mean to get that person to do what I wanted them to do, whether that was to give money to the cult, say a prayer or whatever else. We were taught to manipulate this book to do to serve a purpose and how many multiple meanings every single verse could have. And then we were expected to blindly follow the adults that were losing these same scriptures against us to do horrible things to us. And if you asked a question, you'd get brutally punished. And it's like, how does that make any sense? So on the one hand, they're teaching me that this can mean anything you want it to mean. On the other hand, I'm not allowed to ask a question when you say it is like the word of God and the reason that you have to do X, Y, Z. And it left me extremely cynical. So it's not so much religion that I have an issue with, but I find it really, really impossible to have faith. And I, when I left, I started looking into all sorts of different religions and philosophies. But no matter which one I've tried, there always comes a point where they've just got to believe or have faith in something. And I find that's not something I'm capable of anymore. And as for what I feel that void with, I'm not sure I have. But I'm also not sure it's necessarily a void, you know. It's like some people use their religion for their comfort and for like their moral guidance and all the rest of it. I've just sort of done all of that on my own. I've got my own moral code. I've got my own do's and don'ts and lines I will and won't cross. And I guess I don't I don't really feel that it's missing. It's just not something that's there. I often think with um, people who've come out of cults, it's like you have to reassess everything that you've ever thought and the rest of us never have to go through that process. So you've, um, you know, you've been able to reconsider all of those things in a way that some, the rest of us don't necessarily know what's indoctrination and what's not in our own lives. So mm. I don't know, there are, there are some things that we could gain from doing that reassessment too. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, so we are ending or nearing our time. I wanted to um, open it up if anybody has any more questions. Sarah, if you have any additional questions. Um, But Verity, ultimately, what do you want people to gain from you sharing your experiences with us? Because we, from the true crime perspective, obviously know about the uh, Children of God cult because of the um, documentary, but also because of the crime committed um, by one of its former members who was severely abused by many um, individuals within the Children of God cult. Um, but what are you hoping people get from you sharing your story? Um, the main thing I've always wanted about me sharing my story is for others to come forward make their statements a lot of times what they've got isn't going to be enough to make a case but it might be enough to support someone else's you have to understand that if they were abused by a person they're probably not the only person that were abused by them and the bunch of you together could actually make a court case happen where no individual could that is one of my biggest ones especially as my worst abuser is still out there as well as many others and if more people made supporting statements maybe that would not be the case secondly I would like people Mm. to find their voice coming from any abusive environment there's so many people that have this fear of speaking this feeling of worthlessness this feeling that it's not worth their anyone's time to listen to them and that nothing will happen as a result of them saying their piece but 
people will believe you and people do care. I find their voice, even if they don't get justice or a day in court, they could get closure just from that because that in itself is powerful and life changing. And um, as a final thing, I know for coming on here today, um, I know you mentioned earlier, Sarah, about companies that do help people that have left cults. Um, there is one actually set up in America by ex-members of the cult I was from. It's called the Safe Passage Foundation. If anyone wants to donate to them, they have a Facebook page, they have a website, they look up Safe Passage Foundation, and it's set up by ex-cult members for people leaving high-control environments and it's helped people with education it's helped people with medical costs it's helped people with housing it's a really good charity it's really underfunded if anyone does want to actually you know physically help the survivors if they want you to make a donation then that would be a bonus awesome so awesome it's so it's called safe, safe passage. passage foundation i'll put the link in the comments if you like um yes please, yes, please. If I can. So what we, so will, what we will do is, because this, this show, show, again with the echo, um, this show actually goes onto our regular feed, so we will donate the proceeds of what we create in ad revenue to a passage. That would be amazing. Yes. We will do that. That's our pledge um, for that. And I think that that's a great opportunity for us to make an impact. And that's always our goal, especially mine within true crime. It's not just to you know, share these stories. And oftentimes it's the story of somebody's worst day of their life. So if we can make a difference, we we love to do that here. So we will pledge today so everybody knows. Um, and then we'll post um, that we've done it once the episode airs. But yes, we will donate the ad revenue that accumulates within the 30-day time period um, to the Safe Passage Foundation in, um, I would say, in Verity's honor. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time to listen to me. And you've all been really lovely with your comments and respectful with your questions. And I appreciate that. Awesome. Awesome. And Sarah, very, and Sarah, very, thank you again. Sorry, <laughs> uh, echo. Um, thank you both for joining me. I truly appreciated it. I came from a perspective of really wanting to know more and being befuddled by this whole situation um, and really coming away with an understanding of how people can be enticed and kind of how you have to start your life over essentially. So I really do appreciate both of you coming on and sharing your knowledge with me and with the audience. Um, audience, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. As you know, we have our true crime convos um, every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, but you also have a whole lineup of true crime to follow after us. So feel free to join in afterwards. Um, but again, I want to thank everybody Verity, thank you again. I know it's late at your time, Sarah. Same thing. You guys are both on the other side of the ocean for me. Um, so thank you both again for sharing your time with us. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye, friends. Okay, fan club members. As I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFC Pod, Facebook.com slash TCFC Podcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, but let's not forget I'm still locked out. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com.